Well, we've come in our exposition to of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. We've been going through it verse by verse for over three years now. And we've come to Matthew chapter 24, which is a big chapter on eschatology and end times. And I didn't want to start that being gone the next two Sundays, as I mentioned. I'll be Lord willing in Nepal, won't be here. So I didn't want to start Matthew 24. When we come back, we can dig into that. I'm not sure if we'll do that the first Sunday back or what we'll do. But at some point, we're going to get in there. And so what I saw is I saw a, a week, kind of a, you know, a, a free week here. It's outside of Matthew. And uh, for the next couple of weeks, just to let you know, Don Dumbacher will be up here next week. He's a, one of the pastors down at Kishwaukee Bible Church. Um, the week after that, a man named Dave Newton is going to come. He is from Grace Church of DuPage, which was the church that started Kishwaukee Bible Church, which is the church that started us. My goal in bringing those guys to get to, together with you all is just to continue to strengthen relationships with those churches. But this Sunday, I have a really a, a free Sunday, and so I wanted to address this morning a, a subject that I believe needs to be addressed. I was thinking about preaching on missions in Nepal. Steve Belanger did a good job of that a couple weeks ago. I didn't feel the, the big need to do that. But there is something else that I would like to address this morning. It's the topic of, of water baptism. I know in my own ministry, I know of many failures of things that I have done that I shouldn't have done or things I said that I shouldn't have said or things I should have done but didn't, you know, the, the card I didn't write, the phone call I didn't make. And I'm under no delusion that I've got it all figured out as a pastor and also with my preaching as well, I'm, I'm fully aware of my deficiencies. In fact, you can just talk to my wife. I think about every Sunday morning, every Saturday night, every Sunday morning coming to church, I am pretty, I'm in anguish of soul because I feel like my message is just lax. And maybe I'm growing in that. I don't feel like I am. It's just a, a depression that, that comes upon me sometimes. And I think that one of the things that I have lacked in preaching is an emphasis on baptism. I believe I speak much of the grace of God. I speak much of the glories of Christ. I think I speak much about repentance and faith and the need to live righteously. And I try to speak to your hearts. I think I do that with some measure of success. And yet, I think one area that we have not done well enough as a church, I don't think I've done well enough, is to emphasize even Christian baptism. I, I do believe there's some justification in this. Open your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I think there's some justification for this because when Paul said about his ministry, when he looked at his ministry, he defined it in, in curious terms here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 17, Paul says this. He said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So, I take from that verse that Paul sees baptism and the preaching of the gospel as two different things. And he saw the one, the preaching of the gospel, as the task to which God had called him to do. And baptism was something that God hadn't called him to do. Now, certainly even in the context here in 1 Corinthians... He baptized some. He said in verse 16, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other, probably there in Corinth. He probably couldn't remember because he'd baptized many. But Paul saw 
baptism as a minor importance, and you saw preaching the gospel as the major importance. Now, it's not that, that baptism was of no importance to Paul. It's simply the physical act of baptism didn't receive his priority of attention that the gospel does. And you can see that even, it's interesting, reflected in the epistles. They are covered from beginning to end, saturated with all speaking about Christ and His work on the cross and the implications to us and how we ought to live. But in only six of His 85 chapters does He mention baptism. And oftentimes that's just like in one verse making just one point. So it's even like in his epistles, he hasn't spoken much about it. Now, having said that, let me say that baptism isn't to be neglected or ignored. Turn over to Matthew chapter 28. Jesus gave his final words to his disciples. He mentioned baptism as something that's crucial to the process. His instructions are found at the very end of Matthew 28, the very last three verses. These are what we call the Great Commission. They give us really the marching orders of what it is we are to do as a a church. And Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. really defines our task as a church. We are to go into the worlds. We are to make disciples of all the nations. That's the core work. It's making disciples. But we're to do that several different ways, by going and by baptizing and by teaching. And I think certainly this phrase baptizing here, it includes the physical act of baptism, but I think it has even a bigger, broader connotation. I think it speaks about proclaiming the gospel, calling people to repent, Believe and trust in Christ, seeing people confess their sins, baptizing them in water and receiving them into the fellowship of the church. I think that's, that's all wrapped up in this term baptizing. And then when they come in, spend, you know, task, time, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so here, even though maybe Paul doesn't mention a lot, even though even in the scriptures it's not mentioned a lot, my goal this morning is to cover every passage in the Bible that talks about water baptism. And you'll find that we can do that in an hour and 25 minutes that I've allocated for myself. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> I told Doug Sosnowski, I said, my sermon's a lot shorter than it could be this morning. Because we're going to have lots of passages we're going to go to. And, and though even we can cover in an hour the complete teaching of the Bible on baptism shows it's kind of it's somewhat of minor importance, yet it is, right even in here, it is something crucial. And I think as we as a church need to grow in just the priority we place on baptism in, it, in its role. And so that's what my purpose is this morning. Really stir our hearts in those kind of things. And uh, I think about for you all, if you have never been baptized, this message is like directed towards you. This would be very pertinent for you because I'm going to ask you at the end, why haven't you been baptized? Do you profess faith in Christ? (laughs) Why not? I'm going to press upon you the overwhelming biblical evidence for need of all Christian disciples to be baptized. Now, for those of you who have been baptized, 
I trust my message this morning will be edifying to you as well. Because we're going to go through passages where it speaks about people who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into His marvelous light. We're going to be talking and looking at this morning of those who have been transformed and are walking in obedience to their faith and not to encourage you on as well. Also, it will give you a, a strengthened understanding of what biblical baptism is all about. To speak with people and to uh, talk with others about it. Maybe to put an importance in, in your own life. Maybe to call others to that as well. I know we live in a, a society where baptism is minimized in churches. And perhaps to my, my shame, it's been minimized here. And I think we need to do what we can to elevate it to a proper biblical balance. Uh, and I hope as we go through all the passages, we'll answer a bunch of questions about what baptism is. Certainly not all the questions will be answered, but I think I'll give you and lay a framework for you to uh, think about it. In fact, I may even raise some questions this morning maybe you've never even thought about before with baptism. All right? That's my plan this morning. You know, we got a break right before Nepal. That's what I'm looking to do. Well, let me start here. Any discussion about New Testament baptism ought to start with the baptism of John the Baptist. That's where it's got to start. It was his baptism that set a precedent for Christian baptism. And you'll see that in a little bit. But I want to show you how that is the case. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. This is the first instance we get of baptism in the Bible. It's John the Baptist. He's coming. He's a voice in the wilderness crying, Make straight the way of the Lord. And he begins in verse 4. Matthew does. talking about John. He said, Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance." But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I want to make a few observations from the text. And by the way, I have no outline this morning. I just have five key statements that will come out often about what baptism is about, as I think they come straight from Scripture. I want you to observe here, first of all, location of his baptism was outside. It was in the Jordan River. He went in the river where water was abundance. In fact, that's what verse 11 says. As for you, I baptize with water. If you have a note, even maybe better translated, I baptize in water. Right? Gives you an idea what John's doing. John is standing in the Jordan River with his feet in the the mud and the current is sweeping down down around his legs and he's in the river because there's much water. That's what John was doing. He's baptizing them in water. And I think that this means when John was receiving these people, he was taking them and completely dunking them in water. I think that's what John was doing. In fact, if you look at verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, 
he went up immediately from the water. I think the sense is there that he was in the water and then he now he comes out of the water. And I think that that's the clear sense. He was submerged in the river and then he came out. Here's my first point. Okay, John's baptism was by immersion. And I say baptism is by immersion. Baptism is by immersion. I think it's not only clear from the straightforward reading of the, the pronouns, right, uh, the prepositions here in Matthew chapter 3, but it's also abundantly clear from the meaning of the word baptism. I don't want to get into a big word study about what baptism is, but baptism means dunking. It means immersion. It, it doesn't mean sprinkly. It means being so overwhelmed with something. You're entirely submersed and buried in it. That's what baptism means. In this passage, we see the meaning of baptism made clear. Right, The mode is immersion, but the meaning is made clear as well. John, in verse 6, was baptizing people as they confessed their sins. In other words, John wasn't just out indiscriminately baptizing everybody coming to him. He was baptizing those who were confessing their sins with their mouths. And indeed, I'd say confession of sins is a crucial element to the entire process of baptism. A baptism without confession is like a basketball game without a basketball. It doesn't work. Now, some kids, like I, you know, might, might imagine, you know, that they're going to fade away three-pointer at the buzzer to win. You might do that. But you don't have a basketball. You're not playing. You're imagining. And baptism without confession is playing a game and imagining. Baptism without confession is like purchasing an item without money. You don't go to a counter to buy something. I like that stick of gum. Well, it's 25 cents, please. Just give it to me. It won't work. Baptism without confession is not baptism. In fact, those who tried to come for baptism without confession were turned away. That's what it says in verse 7. John says, you brood of vipers. Right? That's not a, a term of endearment. Okay? That is a, that's a nasty term that he was telling them. It's a harsh rebuke. You guys are coming for baptism, but, but confession of sins isn't on your mouth. Where is repentance? And that's why Paul says, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. So Paul, that's what John said. And here, these, though the Pharisees and Sadducees wanted to be baptized by John, John refused them because they weren't repentant. John knew there was no fruit in their lives, and he said, you need to bear fruit. I think some of that fruit is merely confession of sins, which we know from our studies of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, that they weren't about confessing their sins. They thought that they were perfectly righteous in every way. Now, some have argued that this text doesn't explicitly say that John didn't baptize them, but you can just look at Luke chapter 7, verse 30, and it clearly says that the Pharisees had not been baptized by John. He turned them away. And here's my second statement this morning. Baptism is for repentance. Right? That, that's conversion, that's turning, that's confessing sins. That's what baptism is for. That's what John says in verse 11. I baptize you with or in water for repentance. I baptize you for repentance. The accounts that Mark and Luke give of John's baptism line up perfectly with this as well. You can read those. I don't think I need to cover them. They're exactly the same thing. John's in the Jordan River. People are coming to him, confessing their sins and repentance, and he is immersing them in the river. That's the picture of John's baptism. But the Gospel writer of John gives us some helpful insights. Turn over to John chapter 1. And here I'm going to begin to connect John's baptism with the baptism of Jesus. 
the baptism of Jesus' disciples didn't come from nowhere. They came and were rooted in John's baptism. Here in John chapter 1, John is under the inquisition of the Pharisees. They're trying to figure him out. They're trying to say, are you the Christ or not? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? What's up? He said, no, no, I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. It's saying that he's the one preparing the way. And I want you to look especially at verse 25. They said, why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? From this verse, I simply want you to understand that baptism was understood by the Pharisees. It wasn't some sort of ritual that John just made up. It didn't come from nowhere. The Jewish mindset was that the idea of outward cleansing was representative of an inward renewal. You needed to be cleansed outwardly as well as inwardly. And it was a sign with the, the water coming in. In fact, the Jewish people, when they would worship in the temples, they would approach the Temple Mount. There were some baths. You can go there today. They're called mikvahs. They're baths. It kind of align the, the temple before you get there. And it's, it's like this big bathtub with two doors. One's like an indoor and one's an outdoor. And these worshipers, when they'd come up to the temple, would feel the need to be cleansed. And they'd walk into this mikvah, you know, cleanse themselves, and then walk out, and then they'd go worship in the temple. Presumably even with, you know, wet cloaks and with wet clothes, just going right up to the temple. I've been cleansed. And when John the Baptist was baptizing the Jordan River, these Pharisees knew full well what he was saying. He was saying, I'm the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, where he talked about, I'm going to wash them with water in the new covenant. And they understood what he was doing. They saw that there was confession and repentance. They knew that this was somehow connected with, with the Messiah coming. And particularly here in verse 25, they're disturbed that he's baptizing if he's not the Messiah. Do you see that? So as they understood that a baptism was coming, and they knew that when Messiah came, there'd be a baptism. And they, they said, why are you baptizing if you're not the Messiah? So there, there was this expectation of that. But something else is very interesting about baptism. Turn over to John chapter 3. This is right after the first Nick at Night program took place when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. And uh, we see here Jesus in verse 22 and His disciples baptizing. Right After these things, Jesus and His disciples came into the land of Judea. And there He was spending time with them and baptizing. John has been on the scene baptizing, and now Jesus comes on the scene and does the same thing. There's almost no distinction. What John was doing, that's what Jesus was doing. There's only one exception, though. In chapter 4, we see the one exception, the one difference between John's baptism and Jesus. John chapter 4, verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed into Galilee. Right? Here we read that Jesus was baptizing and making more disciples than John. But the exception was Jesus wasn't actually baptizing. It was his disciples who were baptizing. And they were making more converts than John the Baptist. And presumably we can assume that they were doing exactly the same thing. Immersion in a river like John the Baptist... And upon confession of sin, after all, they were coming, becoming his disciples is clearly what it says there. Right? So I think that you see those things, again, the immersion aspect of that. You see the fact that it's for repentance as they're making disciples as well. Right? Is, that make, is that clear? Well, 
If we look at the Gospels and look at the rest of of the data we have in the Gospels regarding baptism, the Gospel writers are fairly silent. There are a few more references to John's baptism, but they merely describe John's baptism in connection with John. For instance, maybe you remember in Matthew 21 when Jesus said, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Just kind of a, a, a passing reference to the baptism of John, not really teaching anything new about baptism. There are a few references to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We saw that in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I baptize in water, but he will baptize in the Holy Spirit. That's not what we're talking about today. That's talking about the Spirit coming upon people, like at the day of Pentecost in fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Our focus is water baptism. And a few other usages of the word baptism that don't mean water baptism, but show the meaning of the word being overwhelmed or being dunked. Do you remember when uh, Jesus, the, John and James came up to Jesus and they said, Grant to us a seat of honor in the kingdom. And uh, he said, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? What's he talking about? you able to be killed like I am? And then he says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's talking about something that's so overwhelmingly coming upon you. That's not talking about water baptism. Right? But the topic does come up again at the end of the ministry of Jesus. And we've already seen that the end of the book of Matthew. It talks about baptizing. Now you've got some context what was happening in the Gospels. You can see when Jesus talks about baptism, he's talking about, well, do what John did. Do what you have been doing. It's exactly the same as the church goes forth. And the early church understood Jesus' words very clearly. We find water baptism mentioned in the book of Acts far more than any other book because a real practical book. What do people do when they believe? Well, they baptize them, and we'll see that. So turn over to Acts chapter 2. Here we see the first time someone's baptized. This is what took place on the day of Pentecost when the baptism of the Spirit came upon all the believers for the first time. The disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues, right? Languages they didn't know, but which other people knew and was recognizable. Caused a stirring. Peter then preached, and the summation of his message comes in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Really putting the finger, said, you guys killed Jesus. Right? Pierced him to the heart is what it says in verse 37. And they are in desperation. It says, what do we do? Right? There's some anguish of soul. There's some repentance. There's some sorrow and confession there. And Jesus answered in verse 38. Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Central to the message of Peter was baptism. Repent and let each of you be baptized. Now, in fact, some people have taken this verse to mean that you must be baptized to be saved. Right? They say, here it is, right? You must be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Isn't that what it says? Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, I don't believe this verse teaches at all that you need to be baptized to be saved. We've already seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 how Paul said, God sent me to preach the gospel, not to baptize. And everything we know from Paul's ministry is all about seeing people repent from their sin and be saved from the wrath to come. And if he saw that as distinct from baptism, then I think even that verse helps explain that it's not baptism which saves you. Well, some will say, well, that's well and good. But really, look at what Peter says. He says, for the salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins. I think the best way to understand this is to remember 
Now how that word for is often used. Remember when John was describing his baptism, what did he say? I baptize in water for repentance. Right? Did that mean that he baptized people in water and as a result of that there was repentance? Right? That's what they're saying, right? Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's not what he did. He said, in light of repentance, and that's the whole context, right? He refused those who weren't repentant. In light of the context, it means, in light of your repentance, I'm going to baptize you. I baptize for repentance. And I think it's a similar sense here in Acts 2, 38. In light of forgiveness of sins, which comes through repentance, you should be baptized. And I think also, if you're going to say you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins here in verse 38... You've got problems with the many, 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 many other passages of Scripture which have baptism nowhere in the context, nowhere in the scope of things that speak about what salvation is all about, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, a gift of God. Right? You're saved by grace through faith and trusting Christ alone. Titus 3, 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? And if baptism was necessary to forgive sins, you ought to expect to come up more than it does just these few times. In fact, even over in chapter 3, verse 19, when Peter again, preaching, again, says what you need to do. Verse 19, repent therefore and return that your sins may be wiped away. There it is. Repent and return that your sins may be wiped away. I don't think you have to be baptized to be saved. But, okay, this is a, this is a big but, all right? There are some that take this and say, well, since you don't have to be baptized to be saved, we're going to put baptism way over there and we're going to put forgiveness way over there and there the twain shall meet. I simply say don't go that far because there is a strong connection here between baptism and and forgiveness of sins. Right? I don't think that you need to be baptized to be forgiven. Right? The water doesn't wash away your sins. But let's not separate them so far. Here's, here's how I've tried to describe this one. I said baptism is linked with forgiveness. They are different things, but they are linked together. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said, He who has believed and has been baptized should be saved. But he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. People say, oh, there it is. You've got to be believe, you gotta, you know, believe and be baptized. Well, the, the issue with condemnation is only belief. And so I would say that the issue with salvation is belief as well. But, but baptism there is linked. Okay? It's linked with conversion. It's linked with forgiveness of sins. And if baptism means anything, it means that you've been cleansed of sins. I mean, that's, that's what a picture is. That's what it is. Water is a washing agent. It's the picture of a purified soul is what it is. Right? Peter communicates this in his epistle. You can turn over there, 1 Peter. We're going to be back in Acts because we're going to chase through all those. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. <clears throat> he says this, Baptism now saves you. And those who believe in baptism and regeneration says, Aha, there it is. Baptism saves you. But then Peter goes on. He says, It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh that saves you. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not the water that makes you clean. It's your appeal to God for a 
a clean conscience, a good conscience that makes you clean. And certainly this is speaking about repentance. It's speaking out your plea to God. God, give me a, a clear, pure conscience. It's an appeal to God. That's what cleanses you. And in that sense, in the mind of Peter, though, as he said in Acts 2, 38, repent, at least you be baptized. Baptism is so linked there that he sees the baptism act even as a, an opportunity really to plead and, and beg of God, right, and appeal to God for a good conscience. And he links those two things very closely together. And so let's pull these two things together. It, baptism doesn't save, right? Forgiveness of sins isn't linked to baptism, but there is... There is some link here. you got to see that. In fact, every single time that Paul mentions baptism, he links it to our conversion. He just puts it there. Baptism is conversion. In fact, Romans chapter 6 is where that's talked about. You can turn over to Romans 6. Paul is linking these things. And maybe at this point, I'm stretching you a little bit because I know I've been stretched in my study this week about how closely baptism and salvation are linked. They are separate, but they're linked. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. You see what Paul is doing here? He's equating dying with sin to baptism. He says, when you were baptized, you died to sin. And there are many who take Romans chapter 6 here and say, oh, he's not talking about water baptism, right? It's a dry verse, I've heard people say. They said spirit baptism, and, you know, he's, he's talking about conversion. And that may well be, and push me against the wall, and that's probably what I will say as well. But I think that what's happening here is that in, in the mind of Paul, Spirit baptism, water baptism are so linked that they almost see this. He almost sees this the same thing, right? In fact, and I say that because verses three and four. This is the picture of baptism: dying with Christ, raising with Christ. That is the whole symbology, sim, symbolic purpose of baptism. It's a picture of dying and newing, a picture of being washed in, in the water and raised to the newness of life. I think Paul spoke this way, using the word baptism, whether he's just talking about spirit baptism, water baptism, in a way because in his mind, those who were converted were baptized so quickly thereafter that the two events almost became synonymous, almost inseparably linked to their conversion. Almost as if, you know, like remember in James chapter 2 where Paul, where James talks about a dead faith, a faith that doesn't work. He says, a faith that doesn't obey is a dead faith. It's just not even there. And that's, I think, where baptism comes. Baptism is an act of obedience. And those who are converted and who have been baptized in the Spirit will want to be water baptized. And those two will come together in the mind of Paul. They're hardly, they're hardly separated at all. They're linked together. And Paul says that. You don't need to turn to these. Let me just read the other references of Paul the baptism. He says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, kind of the same argument. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Right? You've been baptized into Christ. That, that may, that's spirit baptism for sure. It's probably water baptism. It's kind of all linked together. And I'm just trying to press home upon you this aspect of forgiveness of sins and baptism. They are linked. That's the biblical data. Paul also said, Colossians 2, In Him you are circumcised with the circumcision of Christ, 
having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And he's talking about baptism, perhaps spirit baptism, to be sure, because it is there by faith. I'm not so ready to disassociate those two things, though. There's only one more reference of Paul to baptism. To, for completeness sake, I quote Ephesians 4, verse 5, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We've covered Paul on baptism. And we're working our way through Acts. Now, I know the danger in saying these things. All right? I know the danger, and I know why people want to separate baptism and forgiveness of sins to the opposite extremes. Because as soon as you start linking these, people start being superstitious about this. And, and, you know, start saying, oh, it's the baptism which washes it away. And, you know, we need to be baptized. Refer to our baptism. And, and you can be superstitious about that. You can view the water as magic. The Roman Catholic Church, that's what they do. The water is somehow magic. I've been to a, a baptism ceremony where Roman Catholic Church will sprinkle an infant. And it is astonishing what they say. Sins are all wiped away. All gone. Clean and pure. By this water. Boop. That is magic. That is superstitious. That's not the way the Bible talks. Okay, But let's not react and push them so far. Let's realize that there is, there is link. There was link in Peter's presentation. There is even a link in Paul. And let's keep them close together for the full evangelical understanding of that. So here's my point is this. Baptism is linked with forgiveness. Baptism, you might say, is linked with conversion. It's just synonymous almost there. Though they are different and distinct, there's a leakage there. Well, let's turn back to Acts chapter 2. We also learn from this passage several other things. Baptism is for believers. That's my fourth point, I think. Baptism is for believers. My fourth statement. We see here in verse 41, So then, those who had received the word were baptized. Receiving the word is a synonym with believing. Baptism isn't for everybody. It's for those who have heard the gospel and believe the gospel. It's those who have realized that they have sinned before holy God, have confessed it, repented of their sin, cried out to the Lord to save them. It's for those who have come to faith in Christ. Those who believe, those who receive the message, these are those who are baptized. As we go through the book of Acts, this is going to be like a drum. I'm going to continue to pound. It's belief and then baptism. Belief and then baptism. It's always the pattern. It's never the other way around. It's never baptism than belief. It's always belief and then baptism. Now, closely related to this point is the one that's challenging me and ought to challenge us the church as well, is this. Baptism should come quickly after belief. Those who came to come to faith should be baptized. Time shouldn't linger on. In Acts 2, it's what happened. Look at verse 41. So then those who received His word were baptized. And there were added that day 3,000 souls. They had 3,000 baptisms in one day. The same day that Peter preached, the same day that people were baptized. There wasn't this long, intervening period of time between faith and baptism. It was short. Now, in our society, we have, in some sense, a, a problem with baptism taking a back seat in many churches, even including ours. And I simply say, as a pastor of a church, I want to start working harder at moving moving time between conversion and baptism much closer together. And I know the difficulties, especially dealing with children. Many children, they can't remember a time when they didn't believe. 
And yet, there's extents where they ought to be able to articulate and understand it before they're baptized. And so I'll answer that question at the end, how to deal with children. But I think that's a, that's a major question, especially for us. But for many new converts, right, they need to be taught what baptism is and what it means. I don't think it takes so long. For the Jews, it was easy. They were ingrained with this washing idea. The mikvah were there around. didn't take them long to understand what it's about. Right? And so also, they, I don't think it's very difficult to understand for converts to understand about baptism. It shouldn't take years. shouldn't take months. Maybe it takes just an hour. Just take my CD and give it to somebody. I think they should understand. So, so pastor, though, I know the tension of, uh, of between seeing people baptized right away without discerning the authenticity of their repentance, you know, lest you have people who are really superstitious about this. You know, they're walking through it superstitiously. And on the other hand, you know, not waiting and dragging it out for so long to see if the repentance is real. But I would say as a pastor, too many people start out like the parable of the seeds, right? They, their faith is only temporary. starts it, it, it blossoms with joy. And then when persecutions and afflictions and trials come, they're gone. And it's better for them not to have been baptized. Right? Coming up so fast and then gone because I think there are many people on the planet who have been baptized who possess no real faith. And many people on the planet who have a false assurance of salvation based upon a superstitious understanding of a hasty baptism. Those are some things you got to weigh in tension. But I am encouraged that a faulty baptism, I always call it faulty, I want to say a, a baptism of a false convert took place in the Bible in Acts chapter 8. Turn over there. The context is the church is scattered abroad as a result of persecution of, that came about because of Stephen's death. Philip had gone down to Samaria. I want to read a lengthy portion here, beginning in verse 9. Now there was a certain man named Simon who was formerly practicing magic in the city, astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. He was a witch doctor. He used his spirits for his own benefit, right? He, he did these mighty powers and people respected him and they looked to him for help. They called him like the great power of God. He loved that. And along comes Philip, verse 12. When they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized men and women alike. And again, let me point out, right? That's, those who were believed were baptized. It's only those who believed were baptized. And notice who it was. It says explicitly here. It even says that men and women alike were being baptized. There's no explicit mention here of children or infants in this passage. But the explicit mention is here of men and women. Kind of gives us a hint of maybe a maturity that is involved here in baptism as well, the confessed sins. But the amazing thing, the shocking thing comes in verse 13. This witch doctor believed. Even Simon himself believed. What a wonderful thing. For those involved in Wiccan, those involved in the New Age, right, to come to Christ. And that's what he did. And after being baptized, he believed and was baptized. He continued on with Philip, right? Someone in the church continuing on as he observed signs and great miracles taking place was constantly amazed. Here was the magic man who dealt in the cult, believed the things that Philip was preaching, and so Philip baptized him. But we see a little bit about this man. We've already got some hints of it in verses 9 and 10. Coming in verse 18. Now when Simon saw 
that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offered them money, saying, Give me this authority as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. And sadly, Simon didn't, you know, even at that point, confess and repent. He said, Peter, you pray to the Lord for me yourselves, that nothing what you said may come upon me. Now, we don't know the fate of Simon or not. I'm inclined to think that he only was converted because of the great power that he wanted. Maybe that's not the case. We don't know. It's all conjecture. But I think the purpose of verse 9 and 10 is to show this man was interested in power only. And he was interested only in the power of the Spirit. And I'm not even sure that in verse 24 his heart is really repentant. But the point I want you to see here, though, is even before a man showed his true colors, he was baptized. So just kind of maybe take that time down, you know, rather than demanding a bunch of fruit like many churches do. Just to say, hey, if you believe, you can articulate it, let's be baptized. Like the Ethiopian eunuch, which comes here in chapter 8. Here's a man from Ethiopia coming to Jerusalem to, to worship. He's coming on his way back home, down near Gaza in the desert where it's dry, not a lot of water around. He was reading this passage in Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. He was confused about it. The Lord led Philip right there to talk to him about it. He said, hey, what does this mean? And Philip, verse 35, opened his mouth and beginning from the Scripture, he preached Jesus to him. I could elaborate a long time about how that probably went. Starting Isaiah 53 and talking about these verses here and, and backing up maybe Isaiah 53, verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. It's talking about Jesus and He died. right? And even maybe talking at the end of, of um, Isaiah 53, it talks about He's going to see the anguish of His soul and be satisfied. He's going to see the fruit of that and talk about the resurrection. And, and then from there going to other passages, We can conjecture what he preached about, but we know one thing also he preached about. He preached about baptism because in verse 36, the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Verse 37 is in some manuscripts and not. It's great theology, whether it's in the Bible or not. Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so, verse 38, he ordered the chariot to stop. Both of them went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Right? We see here the same things, right? Belief and then baptism. Quickly afterwards. We see immersion here also, right? You're traveling in the desert. Only a fool isn't going to bring enough water to be sprinkled with. Okay? But you're not going to have tubs of water around. But he said, oh, there's something that I can be baptized. He understood that baptism was immersion as well. Well, we're quickly coming to an end. We're going to fly through some of these rest of these passages. Acts chapter 9, verse 18. Story of the conversion of Saul. He's on the road to Damascus to persecute the Christians there. Big light shines in the sky and blinds him. And after three days of blindness, a man named Ananias comes to him and opens his eyes. And then it says in verse 18, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized. As soon as Ananias talked to him, we don't know exactly what Ananias said. As soon as Ananias talked to him, he he believed in Christ, trusted him, 
Right? He saw with his eyes open. We can even take that to see that he physically saw, perhaps spiritually even saw, and then he went and was baptized. Later in Acts 22, verse 16, though, we do know what Ananias said. Listen to what he said. Ananias called to Paul. He said, And now, Paul, why do you delay? Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Why are you delaying? What's the delay in this matter? Get up. Go get baptized, right? Wash away your sins by calling upon the name of the Lord. Now, for those who believe in baptismal regeneration, baptism saves you, there's another verse. And I simply say that it's washing away your sins by calling on his name. That's how you wash away your sins. Calling on his name and understanding of his forgiveness of you. It's the pattern. Baptize quickly. Close connection between baptism and forgiveness. They go, well, next chapter, chapter 10. It's the next time we have baptism. We only have a few more left. Here's the story of Peter going to Cornelius. Gentiles. Holy Spirit fell upon them in verse 44 after preaching the message of the gospel. And then we see in verse 47 and 48. Listen to what Peter says. Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? <laughs> If you receive the Holy Spirit, surely you cannot deny baptism. You can't refuse it, can you? Sadly, in the church today, there are many who do. And what Peter said, it, it can't be. Surely no one can refuse water who have received the Holy Spirit, right? Received the Spirit, believed, is what the sense is there in verse 48. And he ordered them to be baptized. And perhaps even here as a pastor, I need to do this more. You know, people come and find out they're not baptized. I need to order them to be baptized. Maybe that's my call this morning. Well, if you believe and trust in Christ, be baptized by divine authority. In the name of Jesus Christ, he did. He stayed on a few days. People were believed and then were baptized. People believed were quickly baptized. Acts 16, we find the same pattern. Look at verse 14. It's the story of Lydia, the first convert in all of Europe. From the city of Thyatira, she was a seller of purple fabric. It says in verse 14, she was a worshiper of God. She was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. In verse 15, when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful, Lord, come into my house and stay. Now, here we see the Lord opening her heart to believe these things and she was baptized. There are many people who will make a big deal. Oh, but her whole household was baptized. That includes infants. Right? She's finding infants there. They do. They always find infants there in that passage about, about um, household. There may be. There may be children. There may be servants. We don't know. Okay? We don't know whether there were any. I believe, though, that they were baptized because they believed. In fact, that's what happens in the next household baptism. It says explicitly with the Philippian jailer. Remember the story? Paul and Silas are in stocks. Rather than complaining about their imprisonment, they're singing songs of praise. Earthquake happens. You know, their, their chains are loose. The bars are open. They could escape, but they don't. And certainly they made a big impression on this jailer who said in verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You've got something I don't have. What do I need to do? And Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And there it is. They try to connect that back to Lydia. If the Philippian jailer believes, the whole household is saved. Well, I simply say, let's look at the data. Verse 32. They spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So initially they said that. Paul, they were invited into his house, spoke the word of the Lord to him. 
And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. The question is, who believed? Just a Philippian jailer? What about the infant children in the home? Well, here's what it says in verse 34. And he brought them into his house, set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. I think his whole household believed. Everyone in the household believed. So everyone was baptized. And I would push that back to explain what took place with Lydia. It's the clear interpreting the unclear that I think with Lydia, her whole household believed as well. The same things we see, right? Belief and then baptized. Baptized quickly after belief. Even here, that very night, they're baptized. We just have two more verses. Acts chapter 18. We see here a summary of what was taking place in Corinth. We see Crispus. Verse 8. Acts 18, verse 8. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Here it is. Hearing, believing, being baptized. Same pattern. Acts 19. <clears throat> Let's look over there. Verse 5. Speaks about some peculiar people who had heard of the baptism of John, were baptized into John, but not into the baptism of Jesus. When they heard that John, about the testimony of John, that John in verse 5 was telling the people to believe in Him who was coming after Him, that is Jesus, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. I believe they were, them, they were believing in John's baptism. And then when Paul came, said, Oh, no, no, John was even saying, Get baptized in Jesus' baptism. And then they were baptized. All right. We can take a big breath now, okay? We have surveyed every passage in the whole Bible that talks about water baptism. Every single one. I've gone through it. And now some questions. Okay. What should we do as a church? What should we do as a church? I think that we need to work harder at placing baptism in a more prominent role. I think about some ways to do this, and we should probably put it in the bulletin, Judy. Every week, just a new visitor comes, they're looking through the bulletin, and they say, oh, baptism, boom, and you get, get you know, oh, that's, that's important here. I think that's a way to even preach baptism every week. That's not even... It's not even spoken from the pulpit, but it's just a constant reminder. Up to this, we haven't done this. To my shame, we've not held it as high a priority with that. Perhaps we can make this CD that we're making right now available. Just so we got copies. Are anyone interested in baptism? Hey, boom, right here. This on this CD. You know, we've got all the Bible passages referred to baptism. We're talking about that. Can we do that, Ken? We can probably do that. You know, it's pretty easy. That just puts baptism right there in front of people, so I don't have to stand up here every Sunday. You know, and talk about that. That's what we need to do. I think perhaps we also need to work harder at reducing the time between conversion and baptism. I've been exposed to a few churches in recent days um, preaching. And uh, what they've done is this. At the end of the service, basically call people of faith in Christ and say, are you baptized? Have you not been baptized? Let's come right now. Let's go. Let's be baptized. You know, they got everything all ready. And I've seen even a testimony, I've seen pictures of this, you know, scores of people coming, they've never been baptized, you know, they've been floating around church, never baptized. They just come, and in, in light of the New Testament pattern here, they say, it's baptized. And I heard one pastor say this, so, well, you might say, well, I didn't bring a towel, I'm not prepared. And he said, well, go home wet, is what he said. Just, just the, the thrust and the, um, the purpose there, what's more important, obedience to the Lord or a wet 
car. Now, practically, it's more difficult for us. We don't have a baptismal font here, right? And honestly, it's something that scares me a little bit, right? So I'm not, I'm not proposing this. Like, but I think that we can get, get much better in that, right? There's a part of me that says, you know what? There's something very right about that. As uneasy as I am, I say that something very right about that. And I say as a church, let's just reduce the time between conversion and baptism. You know, and when someone comes to faith in Christ, let's work baptizing quickly. If you hear someone who's come to faith and not baptized, let's urge them and let's get them baptized. Now, now know that my goal is not to have baptisms, to have numbers on the wall and on the list. You know that's not my goal. It is the goal of many churches, okay? I'm simply trying to say that baptism perhaps needs to have a higher priority than what we have. We, I have relationships with other churches. We can use buildings for baptism. We can mobilize that pretty quickly. And maybe we get better at it, you know, we can do that even same day. Maybe go outside, use a pool or a river. I don't know. I think we just need to reduce that time. Because that's what the apostles did. What about infants? That's always a question. What about infants? Well, I've, I've surveyed every Bible passage that talks about baptism. And were infants in any of them? I mean, they're like, it's like nowhere, all right? Nowhere is baptism infants to be found. Now, those who do baptize infants, do you, you know why they do? They baptize it from a theological foundation that they have that's grounded in the Old Testament. Let me just tell you how it works, all right? They believe that there's a complete continuation of the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? The Old Covenant is exactly the same as the New Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, you came into the covenant by birth. You're part of Israel. That's how you came into the Old Covenant. I mean, you were... You just came into the covenant by that, by birth. That's why they were circumcised, the sign and seal of the covenant. And they say the New Testament's the same, right? You come into the covenant today by baptism, but it's also, right, by birth. <clears throat> so, right, you should baptize your infant. That's what they, that's, that's what they do. And uh, I would say, but, but the faulty thing there is, is that the entrance in the New Covenant is entirely different than the entrance into the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was by birth. The New Covenant is what? By what? By faith. That's how you come in the New Testament. And so the rite that gets you in, uh, I said that bad, but the, the, the circumcision ceremony, the baptism ceremony, the, the sign and seal of the covenant, the thing that shows it is baptism, and that comes by faith. It's not by birth, it's by faith. That's why the sign of entrance is different. It's belief and then baptism. Now, having said that, let me also say this as well, is that if someone believes in infant baptism, there are two types of people that believe in infant baptism, okay? One type believes in infant baptism because they think it's in the Bible and because their pastor has always told them that and they're pretty much walking in the dark, all right? That's one kind of person, and for them, boy, you bring just the data here and just say, where is infant baptism? I've heard of many people being changed and conformed to that. That's one type of person. There is another type of person who is really convinced the whole understanding, theologically, Old Testament, New Testament, covenantalism. And uh, for those people, I say, just be gracious. There are many saints in the faith, far smarter than I have, than I am, who have believed that. I'm not about to argue with them and say, I'm smarter than you are. Though I don't see it, but I think that we need to be gracious and somehow even not, not cause them to transgress and go past their uh, conscience as well. Does that make clear? I mean, the wonderful people. R.C. Sproul, that's what he believes. He's a wonderful man. 
Think of Sinclair Ferguson, other Presbyterian, right? James Montgomery Boyce. I mean, these Presbyterians that, that are great men, taught the Bible great, faithfully believed different. Those kind of men, it's, it's a little bit different because they're coming from a base of understanding and reason. And for them, we need to talk with them, debate with them, but always be gracious and kind and realize they're in the faith because they don't believe that it's magic. They have a fully um, evangelical understanding of the infant baptism as well. All right? Yeah. Well, you know, their baptism basically becomes like a parent dedication then. They don't, they don't really believe that it saves like, like some of the passages that these passages talk about. So basically they would say, you know, hey, you've been dedicated because we baptize you, but you still need to come to faith. I mean, that, maybe that's where the distinction comes, where they're not resting on the baptism like the Catholic Church does, but they encourage people to rest upon their faith and trust in Christ. So they're evangelical in that sense. So I guess maybe that, that's what the gospel's the major issue, faith in Christ. That's the major issue. You know, baptism is somewhat of a minor issue with that regard. Well, let's lastly, let's talk about what about, no, it's not lastly, almost lastly. What about children? Well, let me say this, okay? The Bible's just as silent regarding the baptism of children as it is regarding the baptism of infants. In Acts chapter 8, verse 12, it says they're being baptized, men and women alike. However, we do see households coming to faith. We do see households baptized. I'm not saying there has to be children there, but the household, you think about what's in the household. Maybe servants, you know, someone in the household, perhaps there are children, maybe there are older children. We see they believed. I believe that they were probably believing children. We have no idea of the age, but there were some people in the house other than mother and father who were believing. Maybe they were older. Who knows exactly? But there is this sense where you get an idea of a sense of maturity. Men and women alike, Acts chapter 8, verse 12. Uh, There is a sense where, where children... Um, actually can can be gullible in, in their faith. I mean, how many, you know, presentation Sunday school curriculum will say, okay, you want to accept Jesus into your heart? You know, and everybody raised their hand. Okay, we got these people over here. This is on Satan's side and this is on God's side. Which side are you on? You know, and they swing over there. Have you prayed to accept Jesus into your heart? You know, and they have. And certainly, I'm not sure they fully understand everything. But with a childlike faith, they believe and trust. With children, it's a little bit more difficult And so what I would say is really, I'm going to put the responsibility mostly on you parents. You know your children better than I do. And I simply say this. When your child has a level of maturity to believe and articulate his or her faith, right, to a comfort level, they know they can say how Christ has changed their life, how they love Jesus. When your child experiences and evidences a reality of faith, you see the faith within them is real. You see, boy, they, you know, have childlike You know, little understanding, but they're responding to that. I I think they're converted. When your child understands what baptism is and what it's not, right? A child understands, hey, I believe in Jesus, Mom. Why why can't I be baptized, right? They start begging you. I want to be baptized. I want to be... That's what Jesus says. Why can't I do that? They have those things. Boy, let's baptize your child. I don't have... There's no magical age, but I just say these, these things, right? Maturity, understanding, understanding baptism. You maybe you can give them this tape, work it through with them, go through the New Testament passages, and just say, hey, do you understand what's happening here? And uh, oftentimes, even at Rock Valley Bible Church, we've had parents baptize their children. It's a wonderful thing. The Bible nowhere tells us who exactly has to baptize, and that helps to remove some of the mysticism from it. 
So what about children? That's, that's what it is. It's difficult. I've not got it all figured out. Well, let's just work that through and process through it. I think when your child can explain it, is evidencing it, and wants to be baptized because they really want to obey Jesus, boy, let's baptize your children. Finally, last question. What about you? Have you been baptized? Surely no one can refuse the water. Acts, 4, Acts 10, 47. What prevents me from being baptized? Acts 8, verse 36. And now, why do you delay? Arise and be baptized. It's my admonition to you. May the Lord help us, direct us in these things as we go on. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would teach us the church how to how to reform. The church is a reformed church that's always reforming. And when we miss a balance, I pray you'd teach us to get a balance back. I pray you'd teach us to get to a biblical balance of baptism. Teach us, especially with our children, how to deal with them. What a wonderful blessing it is that many children have always believed in Jesus. And Lord, teach us when to know how and when to baptize them. I pray you teach us also, those who are unbaptized, that they would even today come and say, boy, I really want to be baptized. And may we organize that soon. Have a, a service where those who've never been baptized, and I know the longer it goes on, the harder it is to admit, confess that I need to be baptized. I know even for myself, it was a year, it was months before I walked in obedience to my to your calling of me to be baptized. I know how it tormented my soul for a long time. And finally then I was and would pray even for those that you would torment them. They know they need to be baptized. They know they trust in Christ. I pray that they would come and talk and we can organize a, a service that would be a great encouragement to us to hear of your transforming power in our lives. Lord, I pray that we as a church might walk from this day forward in a, in a manner better pleasing to you, teach us how to place a proper priority on the role of baptism. We pray in Jesus' name.